Adhering to the binary of choice between the US and China, a narrative that is constructed primarily as one of containment or accommodation, is not in our interests. As a US ally, security partner and friend, we have already made a choice, but that is not the end of the matter. Realising the region we want in the decades ahead demands multipolarity, not just binary competition. Our real choice is actually what sort of region we want and how we best work towards that. China's going to have to at some point find a settling point for its ambitions before it reaches crisis, confrontation, conflict. What on earth is the United States doing? We have to hold the line, keep the US engaged, appeal to the better angels of the system within the United States, and they still exist, not necessarily the highest ranks of the administration. One of the more disturbing black elephant events that we should all be prepared for is that moment when China feels compelled to mount some kind of military or security intervention somewhere in the broader Indo-Pacific region. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And with us today, fresh from his major book launch last night, is the head of the National Security College, Professor Rory Medcalf. He has, with much anticipation, just released his book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. And we are here to discuss with Rory today the future of the Indo-Pacific and what it will look like. Professor Rory Medcalf has a professional background that involves more than two decades of experience across diplomacy, intelligence analysis, think tanks and journalism, including a formative role as director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute. In government, Rory worked as a senior strategic analyst with the Office of National Assessment, which is Australia's peak intelligence analysis agency. Uh, He was a diplomat with postings to New Delhi, a secondment to the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs and also truce monitoring after the civil conflict in Bougainville and policy development on Asian Security Institution. And before his time in government, Rory was an acclaimed journalist. We will be right back after this break to talk the future of the Indo-Pacific with Professor Rory Medcalf. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. G'day, Rory. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Great to be here, Chris. So we just heard from Australia's foreign and shadow foreign ministers speaking at your recent book launch. How significant is such bipartisan support? Well, Chris, it was uh, it was a real privilege to have, uh, I guess, such strong endorsement for the, the core message of the book from uh, the foreign minister of the day and her opposite number uh, in the opposition, the shadow foreign minister. And both Maurice Payne and Penny Wong, who are both, I think, uh, highly, highly respected, highly effective uh, leaders in their field, were, I think, very pleasingly candid in supporting a, a bipartisan view on Australia's foreign and external policy settings in the Indo-Pacific. It was really refreshing, I think, to hear just that moment of bipartisanship and, and, and to see it as well, to, uh, to have substantial policy speeches from Senator Payne and Senator Wong, speeches that I guess in some way chimed with the key message of my book, which is about the agency of a middle power like Australia in the Indo-Pacific, but speeches which also added, uh, I think, some very clear direction of, of, of the way that both sides of Australian politics uh, are taking this message into the future. As our subscribers will know, our very first pod here at the NatSec pod was with Rory talking about the Indo-Pacific as a concept. We, of course, encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode. But for context here, Rory, could you please give us your definition of the Indo-Pacific and maybe let us know what the importance is in regards to how we perceive regions and indeed maps themselves? So the Indo-Pacific is really a mental map of a part of the world, a large part of the world that is centred on maritime Asia, on the sea lanes of Southeast Asia, but that includes both the Pacific and the Indian Oceans as part of one broad strategic and economic system. That distinguishes the Indo-Pacific from the earlier idea of the Asia-Pacific that many of us grew up with in the late 20th century, uh, which really excluded South Asia and the Indian Ocean. It also differentiates the Indo-Pacific from the, the idea that Eurasia, that the land, that the continental basis is where a lot of the power plays of the future are going to work themselves out. And it emphasises that this is a maritime region and a multipolar region, a region where the interests and the presence of many powers, but especially a number of great powers, uh, China, India, Japan, the United States, both as a resident uh, Indo-Pacific power and as a global power, arising Indonesia. It's the place where the interests and the interplay of all these players uh, is going to affect the future, where middle players like Australia have agency too. So for you, the Mackinder-Mahan argument is being settled in the Indo-Pacific? Um, I would be a little, a little more subtle than that. I'd hedge a little more than that. I'd note, of course, the land matters, but the land matters mostly where it connects with the sea. It's interesting that, for example, China's Belt and Road is the Belt and Road. It's the the seaports, it's the land-sea connectivity that like, that makes the land matter so much. I would note, though, that for as long as the um, the cost of um, of moving large quantities of uh, exports and imports is so much less at sea than on land. 
uh, and for as long as sea power has that extraordinary military flexibility uh, that it has, we're going to see, I think, the sea prevail over the land. That's why China is turning militarily to the sea, and that's why Indo-Pacific middle powers uh, like Australia, for example, have... I guess, significantly more agency than perhaps they used to realise precisely because of their maritime character. Now, not everyone buys into the Indo-Pacific as a concept. What have been some of the more thought-provoking challenges to this concept that you've come across? Oh, I think that um, when the facts change, we always have to change our minds. And I would like to think that just as the Indo-Pacific is now becoming something of an orthodoxy, and of course, only a decade ago, it was considered a kind of geopolitical oddity, that just as now it's becoming an orthodoxy, we've got to keep questioning. And I hope that I will keep questioning the concept myself. I think the the key critiques that we have to engage with, those of us who see, those of us who see value in the Indo-Pacific, those key critiques include the idea that this is simply such a large region, it's not realistic um, to define it as the the canvas for policy and for, I guess, uh, the operations of nations because we simply can't um, exert influence across this whole space. I think that is a fair point and I'll come back to that later on. That's actually a challenge, incidentally, that faces China um, really as much as anybody else. There's also the obvious um, complaint, if you like, that this is really about excluding China. It's about the containment of China. It's not the Sino-Pacific, it's the Indo-Pacific and that somehow the Indo-Pacific is about privileging India over China. I think that needs to be addressed head on because, in fact, it's the rise of China, the growth of its economic and strategic uh, interests and influence uh, south and west and across the sea that has more than anything driven the Indo-Pacific. Indonesia is uh, as much of an Indo-power of the Indo-Pacific as as India, I think, uh, potentially. And the Indo-Pacific does include China. It doesn't contain China in that um strategic sense. So I think there, there are some core arguments we still have to be constantly addressing because, of course, for this concept to be more widely accepted, and it is being increasingly widely accepted, I think some reassurance on that point needs to be provided. Right. And so last night at your book launch, there were there was such a large crowd that not everyone got to put their questions forward in the Q&A session. So we were able to go around in the reception afterwards and record some questions from these people. And right now we have one from Jessica. I'd like to ask about the relevance of the Indo-Pacific as a geographically centred concept in an age where digital connections and digital diplomacy are becoming increasingly relevant. That's a great question, and I think Jessica gets to the reality that we're looking at many overlapping frames of reference for understanding the the emerging global system or global order. At one level, geography matters, and the Indo-Pacific, um, I guess, is a very geopolitical and geoeconomic construction. It's about where nations are in the world and where their interests extend and, and their mental maps and so forth. At the same time, of course, the digital overlay, digital competition among nations, digital connectivity would seem to respect borders uh, very little and would seem to be a global challenge so that shocks uh, and risks can arise anywhere in the world uh, and in fact nations can form partnerships uh, 
across boundaries as well. A country like Australia might just as well build digital partnerships with partners in, in Europe, for example, as partners in Asia. That's all true. But if you look at the many layers of strategic uh, competition that we need to deal with in the Indo-Pacific, and the book looks at those layers, the military, the geoeconomic, the technology, the so-called battle of narrative or battle for influence. Yes, there's a digital dimension to much of that, and some of that digital dimension does have a geographic aspect. So, for example, the uh, the competition over undersea cables, the competition over which countries will allow which strategic investments to take place uh, in their 5G networks. Some of these issues do involve essentially, uh, I guess, the equivalent of geographic choke points in the digital space. And so you'll see a, um, I guess, uh, an intersection of geopolitical and digital competition play out in the Indo-Pacific, connecting it with the, um, the global system. One of your one of the central arguments in your book is that no single power will be capable of dominating the Indo-Pacific. What is your reasoning behind that? And what do you think will be the main contributing factors that make the larger powers such as China and the US and maybe even India accept this actual outcome? Well, that goes to the, I guess, somewhat provocative subtitle of the book, Why China Won't map the future, at least that's the subtitle of the, um, the edition here in Australia and, and New Zealand. The, um, the book is in large part about history. The part that I really enjoyed researching and writing was looking very deeply into the history of the Indo-Pacific as a place and as a place of contestation and connectivity among societies, cultures, nations and empires. And it's fascinating that at least for the last thousand years, we've seen essentially imperial and colonial projects rise and fall across the Indo-Pacific, and it's proven to be a region too large for hegemony. It's proven to be a region that's enduringly multipolar in character, um, and you'll need to dip into the book to see how this played out in Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean over time. So I think there's almost a warning here to any country that either deliberately or inadvertently has a kind of a neo-colonial ambition in the Indo-Pacific. And China is um, obviously uh, one or other of those profiles. Take, take your pick. I think it's not so much about persuading these nations, whether it's China, whether it's perhaps a more powerful India in the future, whether it's theoretically uh, a United States that somehow swings back or pivots back. It's not so much about persuading powers that um, it's not a good idea to dominate the region. It's about persuading these powers that it's not sustainable. And I think the, um, for example, the coronavirus crisis we're now seeing globally, but inside China in particular, is a reminder of the the extraordinary difficulty of manage, managing um, internal control and external grand ambitions at the same time. The argument in my book, Why China Won't Map the Future, is not that China is going to collapse. It's not that everything China does in the Indo-Pacific is automatically deserving of being resisted by others, but it is an argument that China's going to have to at some point find a settling point for its ambitions before it reaches crisis confrontation conflict, because in the long run, China is not going to be able to sustain, if you like, a, a broad Indo-Pacific empire in the way that some of the more, I think, um, grand ambitions of the Maritime Silk Road, the Chinese Navy, the Belt and Road, uh, seem to suggest that it will. 
So there's a number of questions that I want to pull out there, not least the impact of coronavirus. We'll get to that later and we'll also get to uh, China's image of itself in the region. But before we do, I just wanted to go to some more questions that we recorded last night. One is from Hunter Marston, who is a PhD student at the ANU's Coral Bell School, and a question from Nadej Holland, who is the Senior Fellow for Political and Security Affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research. Small powers in Southeast Asia have uh, shown a clear preference for hedging in ambiguous ways to position themselves between superpower competitors in the U.S. and China. But as those superpowers enlist greater pressure to force these smaller countries to choose sides, how can these middle powers and small countries embrace the multipolar order that you see to uh, avoid choosing sides? Uh, will multipolarity eventually win out over this bipolar competition? Congratulations on your book, Rory. I have a question regarding this idea of multipolarity for the Indo-Pacific region, which is the, the central theme of your book. Do you think that multipolarity is possible? And isn't it an equivalent or very similar to division instead of union uh, in times of great challenges? So, look, Hunter asks, a, uh, I think, a very, a very sound question looking at how realistic is it really to get um, smaller powers and middle players to uh, either individually or together, I think in solidarity, uh, support a multipolar order when they're under this great pressure, particularly from China and the United States to take sides. I think it depends on the time frame we're taking here in a sense. I think my book argues that over particularly a 20 to 25-year period looking out to the 2040s, we're going to see, in fact, the relative power of China vis-a-vis some of these middle players. I wouldn't call them small or even middle powers, but India, Indonesia, Japan in particular, but also significant countries like Vietnam, uh, Australia and others. In a, in a sense, China's relative power to these groupings could actually decline rather than increase. We may already be seeing the high point of China's power in the Indo-Pacific. So if we go 20, 25 years into the future, I think there's going to be a kind of balancing tendency in the region where a sufficient grouping of smaller powers would be able to hedge against Chinese ambition. And I don't think by then they will need much persuading, particularly if China uh, continues to be, uh, I guess, a little more assertive or disrespectful of their interests than they would like it to be. The big challenge, of course, is in the here and now with the small and middle powers of Southeast Asia and elsewhere, the Indian Ocean, for example. How do they avoid um, either being compelled to take sides in a zero-sum competition between the US and China or to essentially opt out of the, um, I guess, strategic game and maybe accept, not taking sides, but accept uh, that they don't have a voice, accept uh, that they fall into, for example, a Chinese sphere of um, of interest and a sphere of, of influence. This, I think, goes very much to diplomacy and politics within those countries. And that's where the battle for influence over individuals and governments, the battle of the narratives, uh, and perhaps even the corrupting influence uh, of, um, I guess, some forms of, in, of investment, uh, and frankly, uh, money as well, uh, are going to play out. We see 
within democracies. We see within countries like uh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Malaysia, the Philippines, we actually see Chinese influence ebb and flow often with, with democratic outcomes. And that means that even when uh, the People's Republic of China thinks it has locked a, um, a relatively small democracy into its sphere of, um, of interest and influence, that it's never a done deal. Uh, things can swing back again. And so even in the Philippines, where I see obvious risk in, uh, in what President Duterte has, um, uh, ha- has threatened to do or proposes to do regarding uh, US visiting forces uh, or he's stepping back from the, uh, the legal victory that the Philippines achieved over China in the South China Sea, we see deep internal um, differences over this and we, we in fact see that most of the national security elite and the general public would strongly support a different position to that of their president. So I think uh, China's gains there are only limited in, um, in time. Finally, on diplomacy, I think this is where the agency of middle players like Australia really comes into play. And that's where uh, we shouldn't underestimate the ability of a sort of an activist middle player or a kind of a grouping or caucus of middle players to build um, new senses of solidarity, new agreement on the principles that should underpin the regional order, making better use of the regional architecture like the um, East Asia Summit, actually an Indo-Pacific Summit, uh, in order to set the ground rules for China's engagement in the region. People criticise the Indo-Pacific by saying there are many different conceptions of it and isn't this all really just an American and, and Japanese plot? In fact, if you look at, for example, the, the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, the principles uh, really that are articulated in there about respect for the interests of smaller nations, respect for sovereignty, respect for rules, they are precisely uh, the principles that many other countries want to see and the principles that, even if applied only to some degree, uh, are going to empower those countries and moderate Chinese influence. So I'm, I guess I'm still guardedly optimistic. And look, it's great to have this, uh, this question from Nadej Roland, whose work uh, I think has been absolutely um, crucial on the, uh, the true nature and complexity of the, the Belt and Road and its strategic impact. So it's a really intriguing question to ask that multipolarity may or may not be possible and, and is it similar somehow to division instead of union in times of great challenge. So I guess you could argue that when one talks about multipolarity, uh, what I'm really talking about is forming groups to balance against uh, Chinese power and therefore it's really a, um, a different kind of balance of power or, or, or division of the region rather than multipolarity in the sense of equal respect for all. Uh, I guess I'm saying multipolarity, not necessarily multilateralism. But I think the bigger question there is to what extent can we engage or incorporate China into that multipolarity? The argument I make about the Indo-Pacific is that this is a region too big for one power to dominate, that there are always going to be the interests and the agency of many players at work, that distance actually uh, is an advantage in that regard uh, because it breaks down artificial boundaries and allows countries like, for example, Australia and India to find common cause, uh, whereas once upon a time we saw each other as, uh, as, as very distant. The argument I make is that 
is that uh, by forming this context of a complex multipolar, a kind of sea of many flags, it's going to be harder for China to coerce or intimidate or influence other nations one by one. It's going to need to engage with nations in groupings uh, or at least engage against active coalitions of countries. And therefore, China's going to have to moderate its demands and expectations on those countries. At the same time, I think we shouldn't give up on the the ambition to set some basic uh, rules or conditions for a kind of strategic settling point in the region where China's interests are acknowledged and respected as well and where China becomes, if you like, part of a multipolar order so that next time there are particular crises in the region, China is part of the small groups that mobilise on those issues. And that's really going to ultimately be a set of choices for China. Does it does it um, project its power and influence and interests into, for example, the Indian Ocean or the South Pacific unilaterally? Or does it do so in a much clearer sense of um, of consultation and partnership with, um, I guess, resident powers such as Australia, such as India, or other stakeholders such as Japan and the United States? And that ultimately is going to be a set of choices for China. And to follow on from that, we've got a Twitter question here from Nathan Attrell, who is also one of the PhD students here at the ANU. Does the Indo-Pacific have the right set of international organisations to meet some of the emerging health, environmental, financial and security challenges in the region? If not, what needs to be created and what role can Australia play in this effort? And I would add to that is do, do we need to change any of the regional architecture that was created during the Asia-Pacific era to be best suited to the Indo-Pacific era? Look, they're, they're, they're good questions and I think I think um, the answer is surprisingly simple. That is, we actually have a lot of the right architecture. It just has the wrong name. And maybe we don't even need to rename it as long as we know among ourselves that uh, these are essentially Indo-Pacific institutions. So the very obsolescence of the Asia-Pacific era was becoming clear when in the 1990s and early 2000s as the so-called Asia-Pacific diplomatic architecture evolved, that is the meetings and institutions that try to mediate some of the or manage some of these issues, the membership was almost always Indo-Pacific of those. If you look at the so-called East Asia Summit established in 2005, of which Australia was a founding member, it was essentially an Indo-Pacific institution. It has India, Australia, New Zealand, Russia, the United States, all uh, among its membership, as well as the, um, the obvious East Asian and Southeast Asian countries. If you look at the so-called ASEAN Regional Forum, the ARF, uh, which is essentially an acronym within an acronym, uh, and which, yes, has disappointed many of us in the, um, I guess, the, the lack of uh, outcome or seriousness with which it's approached a lot of the security issues it's charged with. At least its membership is, um, is very Indo-Pacific, even broader than the EAS. And if you look at the ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus 8, the ADMM Plus, um, another of these seemingly uh, obscure acronyms, it's actually the defence ministers of precisely the countries that are in the East Asia Summit. So we've got the rudiments of a of an ASEAN-centric diplomatic and security architecture that's broadly Indo-Pacific already. 
What I would uh, not want to see is some kind of grand effort to build a hugely inclusive Indo-Pacific uh, forum that includes every little country from you know Maldives to Marshall Islands to Mauritius to uh, to wherever. Not because their interests are not important, uh, but because there are already sub-regional organisations that deal with a lot of their immediate interests, and because such a large organisation would obviously become unwieldy and be very difficult to um, to drive to policy outcomes. And that's why there's this strange, I guess, set of contradictions about the right security architecture to manage the Indo-Pacific. Many of the Indo-Pacific's stakeholders and those that can actually achieve outcomes in the region are not necessarily going to be resident powers. Uh, that's why, for example, China and Japan in the Indian Ocean do matter. Uh, France, uh, right across the Indo-Pacific, matters as does as does much of Europe. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're fully resident powers. At the same time, a lot of the effective outcomes are going to be achieved in small groups, small minilateral forums, small coalitions based on the capability and the interests and the willingness to follow the rules and mobilise, such as we saw with the, the Quad, the quadrilateral approach to disaster relief after the tsunami in 2004. That was, in fact, the origins of the quad of the US, Australia, India and Japan, which has huge potential as one of the many laterals that can actually achieve outcomes in the Indo-Pacific. So the architecture will be many layered and a bit messy and I think it's better for us to make the most of that and live with it than try to come up with some kind of new grand diplomatic meeting when officials from all of our countries are already exhausted attending uh, the meetings that they have. All right. Well, that seems like a pretty good spot for a break. We're going to do that right now and we'll be back afterwards to hear more from Professor Rory Medcalf on the contest for the Indep. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Pacific. And welcome back. Rory, you have recently written that the term Indo-Pacific is a message to a rising China that it cannot expect others to accept its self-image as the centre of the region and the world. But it is also a message to America. It is a signal that China and America are not the only two nations that count. What do you understand China's uh, self-image to be in the region and... Has the Trump administration's approach to its alliance relationship impacted the way that you see the future of the Indo-Pacific evolving? Thanks, Chris. That's two uh, two very rich questions. I'll I'll tackle the China question first, but I do want to come back to the uh, the Trump question or the US Trump question. So, look, I think it's really important to get beyond these these these, these false binaries. Uh, you know, one of the the great Singaporean strategic thinkers, Bilahari Kausakan, has emphasise the, the the absurdity of breaking down the future of the region into the false binary. You're either fully with China or you're fully with um, Trump's United States. And instead, like I guess this book, he seeks to empower the rest of us. The, um, the book is a reminder not 
only to China that it can't map the future. It is also a reminder to the United States that um, that the age of primacy is over and that the United States needs to forge a strategy for a post-primacy future in the Indo-Pacific. What's China's self-image in all of this? Look, I think, again, part of the, the trap that China is setting for itself, and I think part of the, um, the frustration and disappointment that many China watchers have had over the years is that uh, parts of the Chinese system are beginning to believe their own propaganda, this idea that China is, by rights, not only a rising power, that's fine, but by rights, the centre of... Uh, really the strategic and economic order in the region, whether it's Eurasia or the Indo-Pacific or indeed globally. The Belt and Road, of course, which literally means the land and sea, um, is a geoeconomic conception of this grand vision that China is really at the centre of things. The rest of us are essentially waypoints along the road and we need to, we need to get used to it. I worry greatly that in the Chinese system because the Chinese Communist Party has created, has fostered this expectation among the public, particularly over the the past three decades uh, since the aftermath of Tiananmen, that only the party can lead, that in order for the Chinese people to be uh, prosperous, wealthy, content, satisfied, have their human needs fulfilled, that China also needs greatness in the world and that that greatness increasingly is tied with a, an assertive strategic and economic presence uh, and, and, and political influence right across the region. I argue that this is an unsustainable proposition. I think it is the self-image that the Chinese Communist Party has projected for its own political survival, uh, but that it's actually a kind of a, um, a desperate race against time because as I argue in the book, within 10 to 15 years, a lot of China's internal challenges are going to intensify and it's going to be hard to maintain the expectations of this almost accidental Indo-Pacific empire. So I hope the book is a a warning uh, and a reminder to those voices within the Chinese system who can offer wise counsel about moderating China's ambitions. On the other hand, there's also the question of what on earth is the United States doing? And on the one hand, I guess uh, Indo-Pacific advocates like me should be grateful that in the past few years, we've had an American president and an American administration that has very openly and comprehensively defined America's future in the region as being in the Indo-Pacific region. We now have an Indo-Pacific command in Honolulu. We have various Indo-Pacific policy and strategy documents and pronouncements coming out of the Trump administration. And we've had President Trump talk about the Indo-Pacific in various speeches in the region. At the same time, uh, in many ways, he's the worst kind of advocate the concept could have because, of course, the Indo-Pacific is about partnership, it's about allies, it's a region that's too big for one power not only to dominate but even to protect its interests across. So alliances and partnerships are crucial and, of course, Donald Trump uh, seems to be allergic to the true meaning of uh, alliance and partnership and is doing his best in many ways to undermine the effectiveness and the staying power of some of those very alliances and partnerships that many of us in the region want and that the United States itself itself leads. 
How will all this evolve? Uh, I do think that uh, it's been welcome to see the United States at one level recognise the strategic challenge from China and recognise that uh, for the US to even protect its interests, let alone prevail in the full-spectrum competition with China, it's going to have to remain present and engaged in the Indo-Pacific. And so, for example, we've seen um, the Seventh Fleet quite active. We've seen some good things go on, if you like, below the surface in American uh, diplomacy, investment, development, and so on in the region. But we haven't seen enough. And we've also seen this very alienating approach to diplomacy that the Trump administration takes. Where will this end? I don't believe that we'll see the United States comprehensively withdraw from the region, and I don't believe that we'll see the US permanently out of the game. Even a weakened United States is still going to be uh, a highly capable great power in the Indo-Pacific. Even a United States with some isolationist tendencies is still going to be a power that can make the difference in this region if it chooses to. For the rest of us in the region, particularly the allies and partners and middle players, we have to hold the line, keep the US engaged, uh, appeal to the better angels of the system within the United States, and they still exist, uh, not necessarily at the highest ranks of the administration, and, and keep reinforcing this message that uh, neither the United States nor China alone is going to map this region's future. And to add to that, I also have a question here from one of the attendees at the book launch last night, Marcus. Does Rory think there is merit to Hugh White's argument put forward in How to Defend Australia that we cannot inherently rely on America in the region anymore? Well, I'm, I'm glad that someone mentioned uh, my friend and colleague, Hugh White, because, of course, uh, Hugh has had uh, a really powerful impact on the Australian and global debate on similar issues over the years. And um, I guess Hugh, in some ways, uh, is an inspiration for my own book. I, I would like to think that I offer an alternative view to some of Hugh's arguments on the future of the region, that a region that I think Hugh can't quite bring himself to call the Indo-Pacific yet. Uh, so Hugh asks, and others ask, well, what if we can't rely on America anymore? And again, I think this goes to this um, this simple binary. I, I, I certainly think that uh, really other nations in the Indo-Pacific should not be relying solely on the United States for their security. At the moment, the, um, the nature of our alliance relations with the United States, particularly in Australia, is such that we do need uh, the United States, no, no question of that. But increasingly building up this web of middle power cooperation uh, that Australia's been very actively doing with Japan, with India, with Indonesia, with others, is, is going to be a kind of a, um, a cross-cutting support to the US alliance system, it will actually make it more likely that America remains reliable for longer, precisely because we're building this secondary kind of insurance. We should also, of course, continue to build up our own strategic weight, and I don't disagree with Hugh on that. I think it has to be much more multidimensional um, than simply a, a very large, if you like, um, submarine capability or, or um, airstrike capability uh, around Australia's, um, Australia's periphery. Of course, we need to build up our strategic weight. But again, we shouldn't underestimate what Australia and other powers can do in asymmetric areas like offensive cyber, uh, supporting one another, supporting ourselves, or further encouraging the United States 
to remain engaged. But where I do fundamentally differ with Hugh's arguments is the idea that essentially uh, China's rise is going to be relentless and unstoppable. And secondly, in the idea that um, the United States has effectively left the region already because uh, if you take all the metrics of power over the next few decades, the United States is going to remain formidable. Indeed, there are even arguments to say that in its, uh, its, its GDP, not by purchasing power parity, but in exchange rate terms, uh, it's possible that China will never eclipse the United States. We've got to be ready for all of those plausible futures. You mentioned previously uh, not only China's internal tensions that it has to deal with, but also coronavirus, which are one and the same at the moment. What do you th- see the impact of coronavirus as having on the region and on the Indo-Pacific as a dynamic? Uh, are there is this a cause for greater friction or are there opportunities for regional cooperation here? Well, I guess I want to be a little careful when I talk about opportunities from a, um, a human tragedy and a public health crisis like coronavirus. Although when you look back in history at other uh, health crises, pandemics, transnational threats, risks like the uh, or, or crises like the, the tsunami in um, Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean about 16 years ago, these often have strategic and geopolitical consequences. And sometimes those can be consequences that change the balance of power or that compel nations to lay down their arms for a little while and cooperate. You know, the the Black Death, the plague in the 14th, uh, 14th century actually brought a seven-year truce in the, um, the Hundred Years' War. Uh, but at the same time, there's just as much risk, if you like, that these new tensions within societies could harden nationalism, could harden interstate competition. And so we see propaganda uh, blaming the United States, for example, for coronavirus. Or we see uh, the the message in many parts of the world that uh, coronavirus is something that China, in fact, allowed to, uh, to leak into the world. And therefore, it should, I guess, raise our anxieties about China. A lot of that probably isn't healthy. And we need to be looking instead to um, ways to now emphasise the need for coexistence, cooperation, uh, greater honesty and transparency uh, between states, between governments in communicating these health risks, and deep down recognising that when the regional and global strategic and economic landscape eventually settles after this awful year of uh, coronavirus that we're seeing, uh, there may well be a need, there will be a need for much greater diversification of the the foundations of each country's uh, economic health and strategic health and well-being. In other words, now that we're seeing companies very quickly look to diversify their supply chains, diversify their uh, deep reliance on China, this is going to have long-term impacts on China's relative power in the region. Right. And so I have a question here from my co-host, Catherine Manstead, who wasn't able to be with us here this morning for the recording. At your book launch, you were asked a question about flashpoints in the Indo-Pacific. And you responded that the flashpoints we should be worried about aren't always the territorial ones, such as uh, Taiwan or the South China Sea, uh, but flashpoints in the areas of information, cyber, public opinion, and so on. Catherine's question is, how, how would 
we even know when we've experienced a flashpoint or a red line has been crossed in cyberspace or public opinion when this particular field of competition is characterised by strategic incrementalism rather than the clear and definite actions of, say, a missile being fired or a vessel being sunk. So Catherine's question is uh, is a really sharp and insightful one and goes to that that incrementalism of um, of cyber, uh, the narrative battle, information operations, influence. She's right. We often don't know when thresholds have been crossed. And I think the, the onus is going to be on governments, their intelligence agencies, and their, I hope, new policy settings for dealing with this world of really constant full-spectrum competition to set the thresholds when they can essentially say that um, enough is enough, that, for example, a cyber attack or uh, an influence operation, an interference operation, an act of espionage, uh, an act of economic sabotage, an act of economic coercion, when this has crossed a certain threshold. The temptation for many governments will be not to attribute, not to declare uh, when this has happened and, and in fact, uh, attempt to counter the problem, I guess, quietly, uh, but run the risk of um, permanently enduring harm. The way to approach this, I think, is for nations increasingly to set the thresholds openly before the conflict begins to identify what the red lines would be and signal those to their potential adversary. And so, for example, in a country like Australia, we've seen uh, a first step in that with the introduction of laws that criminalise certain acts of foreign interference. But it's going to be tough. And sometimes I think those flashpoints instead will escalate uh, really before before we've realised. So, for example, if um, there's some sort of concerted pushback <coughs> against China's efforts to uh, intimidate uh, or the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to intimidate populations in other countries on issues such as the, uh, the repression of the Uyghurs or Hong Kong, uh, at what point will other governments call that out as unacceptable Governments may, themselves may not be the ones that make those decisions. There may be some kind of public response uh, that further provokes China and that governments then have to really catch up with. I'd also note, though, that um, there will be some flashpoints that aren't simply in this vague non-geographic space that, that I guess goes against the geographic nature of the Indo-Pacific. There will be flashpoints at sea uh, or in, in the military sense as well. It's just that I think the, the famous four flashpoints of um, South China Sea, Taiwan, uh, the Korean Peninsula and China, Japan and the East China Sea are already pretty well known, well documented. And I'm interested in identifying what the new flashpoints will be beyond those. What I didn't mention in my um, book launch lecture was the idea of geographic flashpoints that are elsewhere in the Indo-Pacific. So in the Indian Ocean, for example, between China um, and India, potentially uh, a return to China-India conflict on land that spills over into the maritime domain. Or perhaps, uh, and this is I think the most, one of the more disturbing black elephant events that we should all be prepared for, is that moment when China feels compelled to mount some kind of military or security intervention somewhere in the broader Indo-Pacific region, perhaps with the the, the, I guess, understandable intention of protecting Chinese nationals or Chinese interests, perhaps against uh, instability or against terrorism or, or some other kind of localised threat, but in fact, 
brings about a, uh, a much deeper entanglement, perhaps brings China into conflict with other countries. I see that as a, uh, as a real possibility uh, into the future. So my follow-on question to that would be whether Australia's national security apparatus is optimised for both the traditional-style conflicts that you're talking about here, but also the kind of conflicts that Catherine was talking about in in essentially the grey zone. But I'd also like to add one of the questions that we recorded last night because it's quite similar. This is Yuri with her question. All the signals point to the need for Australia to do more as a middle power, but resources are constrained. So if there was one thing we could kind of do well, what would that be? They're both, um, they're, they're, they're both great questions and they really go to the core of the issue as to how a country without infinite resources can mobilise to protect its interests in a region that is too big for one country to dominate. It's frankly too big for us to protect our interests um, in alone. And that was always true, incidentally, with the Asia-Pacific uh, idea as well. So a lot of analysts like to essentially beat up on their own country, uh, their own government and say, well, we ought to do this, we ought to do that. Why aren't we seeing the threat and mobilising for it? I think Australia's actually done quite well in the, the past few years. We're a long way from where we were, let's say, five years ago when many of the arms of government were not recognising that, for example, um, economics and infrastructure are national security issues, that there's such a thing as information operations or foreign interference being directed against us. Uh, I think Australia's come a long way in a relatively short time at recognising the pursuit of our national security and strategic interests in the Indo-Pacific is not a job for the Defence Department, the military alone, or for defence and diplomacy alone. It's a whole-of-nation effort. There's a lot more, of course, that we can do, and I think that the challenges ahead will be really about uh, wider national mobilisation. I'm not talking about turning a middle-sized democracy like Australia into, into Sparta, but what I am talking about is uh, really explaining honestly to our very diverse population, to our business communities, to our state governments that are very well-resourced and important in this, in this game and often overlooked, that... Uh, resilience and protecting Australia's interests and values in this age of geostrategic competition in the Indo-Pacific is in their interests too, and that there will be contributions that they need to make, and that the, the central government, the Commonwealth government in Australia, can trust and empower them in making those contributions. And that's ultimately a challenge for our politics for really, I guess, socialising parliamentarians on both sides, uh, in fact, not only across the full spectrum of Australian politics, uh, that these issues are serious and that they require some kind of national cohesion, not an absence of disagreement, but unity of, of purpose. And that's why, again, I was really pleased to see both the government and the opposition um, in broad agreement at my, uh, my book launch last night. And is it possible for politicians and for people such as ourselves here at the National Security College to be able to provide a, such a mental map for the everyday person, for the mums and the dads out there in not only the era of strategic competition that we're heading into, the risks, the opportunities, but also the the fact that uh, people, as 
we are about to discuss in a large conference that we're holding for the National Security College that people are the front line of national security. Is it possible to communicate this and to get that mental map into the whole of society or, or do we look to politicians for leadership in this realm? Well, I think both of those things are true. I think I think parliamentarians should be able to help explain to the broader public why these issues matter. I think one thing that strikes me about Australia is that uh, too often the key issues of the the security of an sustainable prosperity of the nation uh, have been entrusted to uh, an elite of professional officials, many of whom I know and respect, but who are essentially perceived as not being connected sufficiently with the mainstream of society. And so we need to get these broad national security debates out of Canberra, beyond Canberra. Uh, That's a job partly for parliamentarians, but it's also a job, I think, for those of us that engage in the public debate, sure, to translate the the narrative into into everyday speak, everyday language, and into the the daily interests of the public. It's interesting, though, that um, we're beginning to see uh, progress on this front. So the economic implications of what's going on at the moment, whether it's with coronavirus or with the um, the over-reliance through supply chains on, on China over the years, on a country whose interests and certainly whose values are not in accord with Australia's own, that's becoming much more readily understood across the, the mainstream and the diversity of Australian society. And I think if we can, and when I say we, I mean both those of us who speak in the public debate and perhaps the parliamentarians very much as well. If we can take a long view and project 20 to 25 years and look at the kind of country that we want to have, its sustainability and its values, and of course that is what parents think about with their kids, it's what uh, we all think about on a day-to-day basis, then I think we will have succeeded in persuading that really national security is too important to be left to the national security professionals alone. It's something for everyone. For those that are interested in carrying on this conversation, the conference that I just mentioned is being held here in Canberra on the 1st and 2nd of April. It's called Powered by People, the Future of National Security. And it's where we do have the discussion of society and people as a front line of national security. We've seen this in places such as Hong Kong. We're seeing it now in terms of the coronavirus outbreak in the world. And we've also seen it throughout history with issues such as the Arab Spring If you want any more information on that, please hit up the National Security College's website. And finally, this is a question that we will be asking our podcast guests throughout the year. Um, What has been one of those seminal moments in your career or those interesting little experiences that have helped shape the way that you look at the world? This could be a book that you've read, a conversation you've had, a place you've been, or even a song that's inspired you. Look, I'll go for the place, um, and it wasn't. It was a long moment. It was three years that I spent uh, living and working in India back at, I guess, what we'd now call the turn of the century, and I guess working as an Australian diplomat in an India that was uh, fast changing, extraordinarily dynamic place. Uh, you know, a place that um, that they could be very confronting in some ways, but also uh, can impress you with, with, with I guess, the, the best and the worst of of, of human nature. It was just a reminder that in a country like Australia, in a lot of the the more developed uh, and smaller democracies around the world, we frankly didn't appreciate uh, the scale of the challenges that was to come. I think in many ways, seeing what India's had to deal with over the years has been a, a reminder of the 
broad security challenges that are coming to the world uh, this this century. So we've seen, for example, uh, countries like Australia and others in the world begin to recognise what India had seen for a long time, uh, challenges related to, uh, to Chinese power, challenges related to dealing with terrorism, challenges related to uh, really maintaining some kind of, um, of order and balance in an extraordinarily diverse multicultural society. And of course, at the moment, we see a lot going wrong in the way that India is handling those challenges. A lot, a lot to be concerned about. But I still have, uh, interestingly, a kind of respect for the resilience that India has shown over the years and seeing that really at, at ground level 20 years ago in uh, confrontations that India had with Pakistan, for example, in um, the, the huge questions about uh, really India, India's strategic direction in the world and the beginnings of India's engagement with the Indo-Pacific, I guess those things have stuck with me. I mean, for example, I recall a moment uh, when posted as a diplomat in India that I um, was a, uh, a visitor to the office of the then Indian Defence Minister, George Fernandez, who's, who was an extraordinary man, the late George Fernandez, former trade union official, uh, protester in the 1970s during the, uh, the emergency uh, within India's civil society, but now Minister for Defence. This is going back about 19 years. And on Fernandez's office wall, there were simply two images, a very uh, sparsely decorated office. On the one hand, he had a photograph of, of Gandhi, of, of the Mahatma at the, at the spinning wheel, uh, really a sign of um, frugality and a sign of the uh, engagement with the common people of India and their needs. On the other hand, on the other wall of his office was a huge photograph of the devastation of, um, of Hiroshima after the um, the, the atomic bomb in 1945. And of course, this was a minister who himself had responsibility for India's vast military, for India's uh, nuclear weapons in that regard, or was part of the, the committee handling India's nuclear weapons, and was having to make daily decisions that could have led to essentially uh, war and maybe nuclear escalation with Pakistan. And so I guess having that conversation and seeing the cognitive dissonance that a decision maker like that had to deal with has had a pretty enduring impact on me uh, and on the, uh, the extraordinary responsibility that our leaders have in this era. Very profound. The book is called Contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. It is published by La Trobe University and Blanking. Professor Rory Medcalf, thanks very much for being on the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris. And a big thank you to Professor Rory Medcalf for coming in here and discussing his new book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific. If you have any comments or questions on that yourself, we would love to hear them. Please hit us up on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. Or you can hit me up at NatSecPod on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. We would always appreciate a five-star rating on any platform that you pod with. And we always look forward to receiving your suggestions for issues that we can discuss on the National Security Podcast. And that is it from me today. We look forward to chatting to you on the next episode.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.